If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Yeah, that's right, Hebrews. I know, I know we're in Genesis, but you know, we've always been taught that one of the best commentaries, actually the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And so this morning, if we're going to understand this mysterious character in Genesis chapter 14, we're going to have to go to the New Testament and look in Hebrews 7. So I want you to go ahead and turn there so you'll be ready when we get to that spot. It was June the 27th, 1976, and a group of hijackers from the popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked an Air France plane, surprising the 12 crew members and the 91 passengers, and flew the plane away from its planned destination to a site in Central Africa. They landed in Uganda at the Entebbe Airport, Idi Amin, in the height of his power, welcoming the hijackers to his beautiful country. And for seven days, the hijackers sat there planning their next move. By all estimations, they were calling the shots. But at the same time, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, a group of crack commandos from the Israeli military were loading on to C-130 Hercules transports. And under cover of darkness, they flew into Uganda, landed at the Entebbe airport, and in less than an hour, killed the hijackers and rescued 110 of the 113 hostages that had been taken. The next day, July 4th, 1976, the Israeli Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin said that this would be an act that would live forever. Well, I, I guess they came by it rightly, didn't they? <laughs> Because this miraculous, brave act on the part of the Israeli government and soldiers was just a repeat of something that had happened almost 4,000 years earlier by their ancestor, the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, we have a story about a group of kings who come together, led by Keterleomer, and they attacked the Transjordan Plain. They attacked the cities of Sodom and, and Salem and several others, pull hostages and take off, including among the hostages, Abraham's nephew, Lot. Well, Abraham gets word from one of the people that escapes from the attack, and Abraham takes 318 of his men and begins to head out. I guess those were proto-commandos in those days. They headed out and they got 120 miles to the very northern border of the Canaanite kingdom where they found these. And under the cover of darkness, they went in and overcame the vastly larger number of soldiers that had done the raid. They came in and their arrows blazed, their swords gleamed in the moonlight, and they not only killed the attackers, they also rescued all of the victims, all of those who had been taken, including Lot, all of their possessions, all the women, all the children. And we see in a wonderful word in verse 16 of chapter 14 of Genesis, he brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods as well as the women and the other people. So you can just imagine what it was like when Abraham came riding in 
most likely still covered with the dried mud and blood of the battle with all of these hostages following him into the city. Imagine the cries of those who had lost loved ones who thought they would never see them again. And if you can imagine what it must have been like on that bright sunny day as they came into the city, you're ready for what happens in our passage today. Because in verse 18 of chapter 14, we have a very unusual incident that occurs. Let's read it again together. Genesis chapter 14, beginning at verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Hmm. What a strange character. And you know, it's especially strange because this is the only time in all of the Bible where we have any historical account of this man, Melchizedek. For a thousand years, nothing is said about him in Scripture. And so in that vacuum, there have been lots of theories. There were lots of theories even back then. There were some who thought that Melchizedek actually was Shem himself, the son of Noah. If you read very narrowly the genealogies of Genesis chapters 10 and 12, you could come up with the math that maybe Shem could have still been living, but I, I don't think there's much ver verification for that. Others think it might have actually been Jesus Christ himself in what is called a theophany, a time when maybe prior to Christ actually being born and living here, he made these appearances, much like the one where the three came to speak to Abraham before they go to destroy Sodom in just a few chapters. But we find out, and we're going to see in just a minute in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3, that the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek was just resembling Christ. And it uses a word in the Greek language that always means two different characters. So we know almost nothing about this man historically, except that he was almost certainly a Canaanite king, a descendant, yes, of Canaan, the one that got the curse from Noah. And yet he also had come to believe and to trust in the one true God. Well, a thousand years later, David, who had just become king, says in Psalm 110 that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then later down in verse 4, it says, you will be a king and priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, David is writing a song for the people to sing as he is coming into his rule as king, and yet it's obvious that David is not just talking about himself because he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, who would David's Lord be? Well, I don't know. It couldn't be David himself. And then in verse 4 of that same psalm, Psalm 110, it says that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And David obviously didn't live forever. So David already is recognizing in this character, Melchizedek, a picture of something that was greater even than he who now sat as the king of Jerusalem. Hmm. Well, a thousand more years go by. And now we're in the apostolic age, the age of Jesus and the disciples. And we come to the book of Hebrews, and 
the writer of Hebrews is thinking about what he has heard, not only from Genesis, not only from the Psalms, but also from the mouth of Jesus himself. If you remember Jesus in Luke chapter 20, and it's also recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus asks a question of those who are talking to him about, he says in, Genesis, in Luke chapter 20, verse 41, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus goes on to say, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son as the Messiah? And so this writer of Hebrews, this pastor who is writing to his church that is struggling under the persecution that is coming, thinks about what Jesus said about this Melchizedek, about this psalm from David, and recognizes that it's got to be somebody else. And then he also remembers the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, when Peter also referred to this passage. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is in the middle of his sermon. It says, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself, meaning David, says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so it's obvious that there's someone else being referred to, and the writer of Hebrews is pondering and praying and thinking, and then it comes to him. He knows who Melchizedek is represents. He represents Jesus, of course. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, he talks to us about that truth. And I invite you now, if you have your Bibles there, to join me at Hebrews chapter 7. And in this passage that we're going to look at from Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews gives us a commentary on this man Melchizedek. And I want us to look as well and learn from him what we know about this man and the role that he played, not only in the life of Abram, but also in our lives today. There are two things that we see in this passage. First of all, we see the significance of Melchizedek. Let's just look at verses 1 to 3, first of all. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, first his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. This pastor, this writer of the book of Hebrews says, you see, this Melchizedek is a perfect symbol of who Jesus should be to us. And he begins with the significance of Melchizedek. He looks at how Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus Christ. First of all, in his character. You notice in verses 1 and 2, he gives him two titles. First of all, there is the title of righteousness. You see in verse 2 it says, first, his name, meaning Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. And so Melchizedek had the quality of righteousness, and we know that Jesus also carried that quality. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So this Melchizedek, whose name meant king of righteousness, was a picture of one of the characters of Jesus Christ, or one of the qualities of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. 
And secondly, he says, right there in verse 2 again of Hebrews chapter 7, then also he was the king of Salem, which means or meaning king of peace. So not only was Melchizedek the king of righteousness by his name, he also was the king of peace. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that he is our peace, referring to Jesus. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So you see Melchizedek, the first thing this writer of Hebrews understands is that Melchizedek, this ancient mysterious king, represents the character qualities of Jesus, righteousness and peace. But not only that, not only is he righteousness and peace, he is the king of those things. He is the ruler. He is the one that is in charge of those things. And we'll see in just a few minutes how that applies to us. So in his very nature, in his character, Melchizedek's significance points to Jesus Christ. But not just in his character, also in his qualifications. In verse 3, he sets out some qualifications. And you're going to say, now wait, wait, wait just a minute, Pastor. How did the writer of Hebrews know that Melchizedek didn't have a father or a mother? That's not what he's saying. See, one of the things that's traditional in what's called rabbinical commentaries, that's the way that they would, the rabbis would teach the Old Testament is, they would do what's called teaching from silence. Everybody knows that obviously Melchizedek had a mother and father. And obviously one of those days, a few years later, Melchizedek died. But because those parts are left out of the story, it focuses our attention on other qualities. So when he says in verse 3 of chapter 7 of Hebrews, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he doesn't mean in a technical sense that Melchizedek would just appeared and lived forever. What he means is that the way that Melchizedek is presented to us in the scriptures is without any lineage, any genealogy, and without an end to his life, foreshadowing something about Jesus. What does it foreshadow? Well, let's think about it just a second. First of all, Melchizedek did not have a genealogy that would entitle him to be a priest. You remember that the priests all had to come from Levi. Well, Levi wasn't even born yet. And they had to be able to trace their line all the way back to Aaron himself and then from Aaron back to Levi if they were going to be priests. And yet this Melchizedek didn't have any family record. And guess what? Neither did Jesus. Not in that regard. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Judah wasn't the tribe of priests. And yet Jesus himself was the priest of righteousness and of peace. And not only that, he had no end, no beginning, he was perpetually there. And so in a sense, even though Melchizedek physically, I'm sure, died, his story lingers on. And in the same way, Jesus, who really did not die, or did, but then was resurrected and ascended to his father to live forever, lives now and continues to serve us as priest, praying for us, perpetually present before his father, offering up prayers, even now as we meet together, praying to his Father for our meeting, for those of us who are gathered in this room, praying for life and blessing and holiness and love. Matter of fact, you just footnote, if you still got your Bible there at Hebrews 7, if you look down in verse 25, it says, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus, even now, continues to do his work 
of praying for us. So the big picture is, we had this man Melchizedek, who had certain character qualities, righteousness and peace by his very name, that reflect on the character qualities of Jesus. And he had certain distinctives, certain qualifications. He did not have a genealogy that would make him a legal priest. He had a spiritual genealogy, a call from God. And he did not have at least recorded an end to his life that represents both Christ's role as being called by God to be our priest and Christ's continuing life for us forever and forever. So that's the first part. The second part, the second link we have between Melchizedek and, uh, and Jesus is his superiority. Look with me for just a couple of minutes at verses 4 through 10. By this time, this writer is excited, and he, he puts, you can tell by the way he writes, he says, now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. You see, the first way that Melchizedek was superior was that he received a tithe from Abraham. Now, this wasn't like the tithe that we drop in the offering plate to go to the work of the church. This was a gift that a conquering hero would give to his superior to show his submission and his subservience to him. Now, here is Abraham, the great conquering hero who comes back with all of this plunder, all of these hostages, his own nephew Lot, and everyone safe and sound. And yet, he kneels before this Canaanite priest king and gives him an offering because he recognizes that Melchizedek is superior to him. Look on in verses 5 and 6. It says, the sons of Levi who received the priestly offering have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected tenths from Abraham. You see, I think what was going on was the writer of Hebrews got to thinking, okay, I'm going to write that Melchizedek took a tithe from Abraham, and they're going to think, well, that's no big deal. The priests do that all the time. And he says, yeah, but you have to remember, the Levitical priests take the tithe because they're commanded by God to do it. And the people are just being obedient to God's order. And they're just servants fulfilling that rule. But Abraham gave because he saw that Melchizedek was someone that was superior to him and not just a peer. And you get on down to verses 8. It says, in one case, men who will die receive tents. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself who receives tents has paid tents through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, that sounds a little odd until we think about the way that the Jewish people think about their children and their offspring. The fact that, in one sense of the word, the seed that would eventually become Levi, that would become the Levitical priestly line, was inside of Abraham when Abraham gave his tithe to Melchizedek. So, in one sense of the word, even Levi, who wasn't born yet, gave his tithe to Melchizedek, therefore making the Levitical priests subservient to this Melchizedek man, king, priest who represents Christ. There's another way that Melchizedek was superior. Who gives a blessing and who receives a blessing? Well, normally the superior gives the blessing to the inferior. The father blesses the child. The king blesses the people. So what happens in verse 7, into verse 6 and into verse 7? 
It says in the end of verse 6 that Melchizedek blessed the one who had the promises. What does that mean? He blessed the one who had the promises. What promise did Abraham have? Abraham had already been promised by God. We heard about this this morning in Sunday school. And by the way, if you're not in Bible study, you really ought to be. It's a great place not only to study the Bible, but to make good friends. And so if you're not part of a Bible study group, you need to think about plugging yourself into one. Because this morning we talked about this very fact. Abraham had received the promise that God would bless him and that he would be a blessing to many nations. So Abraham was the, the grand blesser of the Old Testament. And through him, even to this day, we are blessed because of God's blessing on Abraham. Because from Abraham came Christ, and from Christ comes our salvation. So here's Abraham, the one who had received the promises, and he explains this more in verse 8. He says, in the one case, oh, excuse me, verse 7, I'm sorry, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if Abraham, the great blesser, kneels and receives a blessing from Melchizedek, then obviously Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. You see how he's building his case here? And you see how it applies to our Jesus that we serve? You see, Jesus is not only the one to whom we give our lives as an offering, he is also the one who blesses us, and he is greater than anything or anyone or any other power in all of creation or beyond. Jesus is superior. So now let's just take a couple of minutes and finish up thinking about this successor of Melchizedek. We've looked at Melchizedek's qualifications. We've looked at his significance in that. We've looked at his superiority. Now let's look at the successor of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ bears in himself the quality of righteousness, of peace, and of prayer. Let's look at those in order. First of all, righteousness. We already read 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where he said that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ in himself embodies righteousness. He is righteousness. He defines righteousness. He possesses righteousness. All righteousness comes from him, and then he bestows righteousness on those who believe in him. In Romans chapter 3, it says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, Jesus Christ not only is righteous, he also is the one that bestows righteousness on all those who put their faith in him. We are declared righteous, not by anything in us, not by any quality that we have inherent to us in our nature, but because of Jesus Christ himself, we become righteous because he bestows that righteousness on us. So he is righteous, he bestows righteousness, and he then mediates that righteousness out into every area of our lives. So our lives are being transformed into the image of Christ. Like our vision statement says, growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in who Jesus is, and Christ is righteous. He bestows his righteousness, and then he mediates that righteousness into every area of our lives. But not only that, he also is peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the, one of the titles that Isaiah in the prophecy gives to Jesus in that wonderful passage, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of 
peace. Jesus Christ embodies peace. He is peace. He is our peace. Not only that, but he bestows peace. He gives us his peace. And you notice it's always in that order. It's always righteousness first and then peace. First we're declared righteous before God and then he gives us his peace. You remember in John chapter 14, he says to his disciples in 1427, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Jesus bestows peace on those who have been declared righteous by their faith in Christ. And then he mediates that peace out into every area of our lives. This is our Messiah. He is righteousness. He is peace. And he is praying for us. He is our eternal priest that stands before God on our behalf, lifting up prayers that the righteousness and peace that he has given us will be manifested in our lives and mediated throughout every area of our existence until the day that we see him face to face. So what does that mean for us today? Well, very simply put, it means that we have a Messiah, a king, a priest, who has bestowed upon those of us who have accepted his son as our savior, both the gift of righteousness and peace and the promise of his intercession for us. So if there's something that you are struggling with in your life, if there's an area of your life where you're not at peace, if there's an area of your life where you are not exhibiting righteousness, don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened. Run to your priest. Fall before him and say, Jesus, you are the king of righteousness and you are the king of, priest, uh, king of peace and I am your child and you are my king and you are my priest and I come to you and I ask you to give me a sense of your peace where I have trouble. Your righteousness where I am living in unrighteousness. Your prayers where I have need. Today is a day for you to come to him with joy and thankfulness because he has said, I not only am righteousness, I give you righteousness. I not only am peace, I give you peace. I not only am a priest, but I'm a priest for you. I'm praying for you. I'm giving you my peace. I'm giving you my righteousness, and I am mediating that into your life. And so today, as we sing in just a moment, I want you to, with joy, come to your high priest who even now is praying for you and say to him, Jesus, I need your peace. Jesus, I need your righteousness. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never surrendered to him as the Lord of your life. And you're fighting to create your own righteousness, and it's just not working. It's just not happening. You are trying to gain a sense of peace, and yet you're always afraid that maybe you've forgotten something, maybe you've left something out. It's because you've never surrendered your life to that high priest and let him be your king. Let him give you his righteousness. Let him bestow on you his peace. And let him pray for you as he guides you every step of the way by his Holy Spirit. You may be a Christian, and yet you're struggling in your life. You don't have a sense of peace. You don't have a sense of that you're living a righteous life the way God would want. Run to him even now and see if he doesn't answer your prayers. I know he will because I know he's praying for you. And with that in mind, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the promise of righteousness and peace that comes through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that 
this mysterious King Melchizedek is a wonderful foreshadowing of who Jesus is. We thank you, Father, that in his little mention in just those three verses of Genesis 14, we see a man who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a superior even to Abraham himself. And now there is another one who even more than Melchizedek is king of righteousness, king of priests, of peace, and superior to everyone and everything. And so we turn to him. We turn to you, Jesus, when we are lacking peace. We turn to you, Jesus, when we fall into unrighteousness. We turn to you, Jesus, when we need your help, knowing that you are praying for us. And we ask that you would restore to us a sense of your righteousness, a sense of your peace, and a reminder of your prayers for us in this moment. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.